Okay, spoiler alert. Jesus rose from the dead. The, the tomb is empty. Uh, it was a good friend of mine, my best friend this morning, told me that they saw a t-shirt, I believe, right here in San Francisco this morning, somebody actually wearing this t-shirt that said, spoiler alert, the tomb's empty. I love it. Yes. We want all of San Francisco to know that. Just about to go see it. Spoiler alert. I remember being in seminary, and for those of you that may not be familiar with what that is, um, it is where professional Christians go. That's a joke. That's uh, where uh, pastors go for theological education. And our seminary professors would tell us, hey, on Easter Sunday, like, get to the point. Don't leave Jesus in the tomb. Don't have like a 50-minute talk, and then the last sentence you say, and he's risen. So I want to start out this morning by saying, spoiler alert, he rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. Um, and we're going to see in this narrative this morning um, what that means for us and how there's power that raised Jesus from the dead. And you, too, have this power. It's yours. You don't have to do anything to get it. Even the believing part is a gift from God, that God comes to you and he comes to me and empowers you because of the resurrection. So that's our message. In Jesus' name, amen. And we all left and had a great Sunday. <laughs> well, let's look at the story here. Um, I'll read it for us. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other, other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Arama Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead 
to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had said these things to her. Let's take a moment of just quiet reflection and pray that God would speak to us through the scriptures and help us all experience the power of the resurrection. Lord, speak to us now. Speak to us now. Speak to our doubts. Speak to our overconfidence in ourselves. Speak to our longings. Speak to our dreams. Speak to our hunger, our pain. Speak to every person in this room. There's no mistake that we're all here. And so we just surrender. We invite you to speak to us through your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Quick warning here uh, as we're getting started here. If you have or we have a Christian faith that does not have doubt, that is not intentionally, I would even say intellectually thinking about reasons for your faith, you will not have a faith that can take you through the ups and downs of life, just for starters. So, and what I mean by that is in this very narrative, God, even though he's the one rising and and allowing Jesus to come out of the tomb, he involves you in the process. Look at all the running that's going on here. Do you notice how fast this text is happening here and there's sort of lots of running going on? Um, And that's because he involves you in the resurrection. Jesus, God, really could have just dumped a website down on us and you know basically just said he's risen a great great story trust in Jesus the story ends great but instead of doing that God created you with an intellect a thinking cap feelings you're a real person with a real story and so in this very narrative he's inviting people like Mary and Peter and John to get involved to run to go and look And so we know that the the stone isn't rolled away so that Jesus can get out of there. That's not what's going on. The stone is rolled away so you can get in there. You need to get in there. You need to plunder around. You need to think about this. You need to discover. I need to discover again and again and again. And I love here a little bit of humor (laughs) that, 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 that he uses. I love our... Our writer, John, here, he, he, and by the way, the Bible is full of humor. You just have to look for it, but it is most certainly there. And here's, here's an example of humor in the Bible. Did you notice in verse 3 where our writer, uh, John, says, So Peter and the other disciple, he's referring to himself, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, disciple outran Peter. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks, John, for letting us know that you, you run faster than Peter. Okay, that's funny, right? He does it again. Verse 8. <laughs> Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also <laughs> went inside. Peter, in case you didn't get it, I'm faster than you, bro. I got you. I beat you there. I ran faster. So there's humor in the Bible, and, and I think the joke upon the joke, or the humor upon the humor, is that it's not how fast you run. It's not how much faith you have for those of us who doubt. 
God reached the tomb, if you'll allow me to say it this way, God reached the tomb before you and me. And all the very people that he's even inviting to run there and look at it. He got there before you did. God's at work. This is what we mean when we say resurrection power is that God's at work when you're asleep. Remember that passage that Juan read for us this morning, Matthew there, out of the Gospel of Matthew, that like an earthquake caused the stone to roll out of the way. Every one of the disciples were probably asleep whenever that happened. Point in your life, God is at work when you're asleep. God's working. There's power at work when you and I don't even realize it or we couldn't think our way to it. So I want to talk about a few things about this power here that we're going to notice in the passage. Um, There's going to be the power of who God chooses. We'll look at that. The second one is the power through tears. Power through a real relationship with God. Power through going and telling others. And then power of God while we're asleep. I'll leave that one for last. The power of God... Uh, who God chooses. We, we just asked, who is it who reaches the tomb first? Well, it wasn't Peter. John reminds us of that. Well, guess what? It's not even John. <laughs> you can brag all you want, John, about how fast you got there, but it's actually a woman. A woman uh, who discovers the resurrection first and becomes the first spokesperson of the resurrection. Thank God for women preachers. It happens right here. Um, You you may have never heard of this person's name. He was a Greek philosopher in the second century. Uh, This is a very appropriate time to mention something that he wrote. His name is Celsus. And he was an intellectual enemy of Christianity, writing in the second century. And I'm going to quote from one of his books, and I'm going to give you a little warning that San Franciscans, this is going to sound very misogynistic about what he says. This guy Celsus, the Greek philosopher. Uh, He writes saying, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Right? He's an enemy against Christianity, writing in the second century saying, the resurrection all basing its um, intellectual integrity based on a woman seeing it and now being the spokesperson for the whole movement? What? See, in that time, as we all know, women were held in low esteem Yet it's in the Gospels that we see women valued, loved, included, set up in such a beautiful place here as as Mary. There's a Japanese uh, writer, he's a Catholic, uh, Shisako Endo. I quote him, he says, If you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that something amazing did hit those disciples. If we try to explain the changed lives in the early Christians, you will find yourself taking leaps of faith as great as if we had believed in the resurrection to start with. What's the point there of Shisako Endo? It's basically you will have faith in a narrative. You will place your intellectual, your emotional faith in something. And it's far-fetched or as misogynistic as someone like Celsus writing in the second century saying, oh, great, women, they're a part of the movement, and they're leading the movement. Um, Historians across the spectrum agree that the most historically plausible explanation for women being the first eyewitnesses is because they were. They actually were. 
Right? So we can intellectualize this whole thing. We can look for proof upon proof. We can look for timeline upon timeline. We can look for all, you know, all of these things. And wonderful. You should investigate. At the end of all of it, it actually happened like it's written about here. Who does God choose? God chooses the people that you and I might not choose. God chooses you. Think about your story. I mean, really. I think about my own story. I'm like, do, do I, did, did I deserve to, to, to get to know God? Do I, do I deserve to, to have God's love and favor on my life? Mary Magdalene. Mary of Migdala. You may remember um, in one of the other Gospels that this is some fishing community that she comes from, and it's full of prostitutes, and she's most likely one of them. Wow, and yet Jesus is allowing not only a woman but a sinner like this to be a spokesperson for the Gospel and the good news of the resurrection? Yes, that's exactly who God chooses. That's exactly who God brings into the kingdom. It's not your intellect. It's not how great and moral you were and your good record. It's God's grace. That's who he chooses. The second thing here about power is the power through tears. In case we're not understanding it yet, that it's not about your strength. It's not about how fast you can run. It's not about if you figured it out or not spiritually. It's about weakness. It's about needing God. And so power through tears. Look in verse 11 and see Mary weeping. I mean, you and I usually ask ourselves and one another and our friends, and we tune into different news channels wondering, is there really an answer to all the suffering that we're going through? Is there really an answer to my tears? Does anybody even see my tears or give a rip? Garrison Keeler, you probably know him as just a fantastic writer. Garrison Keillor mentions, if life doesn't break your heart at least once a day, you're showing a serious lack of imagination. Life breaks your heart. Tears fall. We get disappointed. Things don't work out as you and I planned. It breaks your heart. It's painful. It's real. And I love the integrity of the Bible and the narrative of the gospel writers and scripture as a whole that it's real. It's raw. It doesn't say leave your emotions or your experience at the door. Now come in here, get excited and believe and go have a great week. This is actually what it means to be a Christian. You have real pain and you have real hope. You have real pain. You have real setbacks, disappointments, suffering going on. And simultaneously, you have hope unspeakable and power unspeakable. Not just pain without hope. You ever met someone like that? Pain without hope. You ever sat in that place by yourself? Pain without hope. You ever met someone with a whole lot of hope, but rejects the thought of pain? It's almost fake, isn't it? Always happy. Thinking everybody else should just go with the flow. Verse 13. They have taken my Lord. Sit with Mary right here in her tears. This is, this is a protest cry. This is a shout of injustice that she's... They have taken. They have taken my Lord. 
It's, it's, it's pitiful, isn't it? Where? Just tell me, where do they take them? I'll, I'll go get them. It's pitiful. They have taken. And this is where you and I make a connection here that either you or people we know say things like, they have taken my home. They have taken my child away from me. They have taken my country away from me. They have taken my apartment away from me. They have taken my health away from me. They have taken my dreams away from me. They have taken, she's crying out. It's a protest cry. It's a real, honest, heartfelt tears. Tears. It's, it's not that Mary won't cry again when the resurrection happens. It's not that when you and I become a Christian or the resurrection happens and we don't cry anymore. That's not the message. If you've heard that before, I'm sorry. It's that you won't cry the same way anymore. You have hope. There's power in these tears. And the resurrected community cries the tears of God because God cries. Jesus weeps. We see him doing that earlier in Scripture, that Jesus weeps when his best friend Lazarus dies. Jesus weeps at the horrific situation that took place at Notre Dame, the fire there. Jesus, God, weeps at the 207 people killed, senseless murder that's going on. Breaks God's heart. These are tears, but they'll never be the same tears. God will meet you in your dead end. God will meet you in your addictions. God will meet you in your tears. Anybody experience that? You can say amen. You can say I've been there. Truth is we all have been there. Are you tapping into that power? Are you claiming that resurrection power for yourself? And the way you do that is realize Jesus doesn't shame Mary. You notice that with me? Do you see that? He didn't just say quit crying. I mean, come on, quit crying. Just, just get over it. Just, just believe. I'm here as proof. Right? That ought to just solve all your problems. Again, I love the integrity and the humanity here in Scripture. Number three, the power through real relationship with God. Again, he doesn't just say, hey, it's me. But look at, look at verse 14. She turns around and like nearly bumps into Jesus. He, he's, Jesus is right there. Jesus is right here, and again, I, I love Mary. She, she thinks he's the gardener. I, I love it. I, I love she thinks he's the gardener, and, and John, we need to know this, a, a theologian and literary artist, the one who's writing here, makes sure to include this piece about this gardener, right? And, and John, as a theologian and literary artist, understands that the beginning of Scripture started in a garden. He understands that. He's actually intentionally bringing out. He's making this very explicit. He's wanting to showcase this, not only to show off, as though he did with his running. He, he's wanting you and I, like right now, modern-day people, to get this and understand there's something going on here. That The, the Bible begins in a garden, Eden. Uh, then the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Passion Week, we were just looking at this last week. There's a garden that's going on there. And now Jesus has been buried in a garden. 
You get, you get his point here? A garden is a place to cultivate life. That's what's going on. An appropriate place for Jesus to be buried. Now see, Mary was, was right on one level here. Jesus is the gardener of resurrection. He is a God who still has dirt underneath his fingernails. Who gets dirty with you and for you. And so the first Adam, the gardener, it was Adam in the Garden of Eden who failed, failed miserably. He was our representative. You would have done it the same way. I would have too. He was the first Adam, the gardener, and failed. The second Adam, Jesus, the gardener. Jesus is known as the second Adam in Scripture. Jesus succeeded in restoring the ruined garden. That's what's going on here. That's the gospel. Sam Wells, an English priest of the Church of England. I'm going to quote him here. He says, Jesus is Adam, the first man, meeting Eve in the garden, who says to Eve, can we start again, please? Jesus is Abraham, the embodiment of Israel, meeting Sarah and saying, can we go on a new journey together and become a true blessing to the world, which we were meant to be? You see the restart there? that happens not only historically in, redempt, in the redemptive narrative, uh, but, it, but it starts again for you and me every day, afresh. See, the power is in a relationship. It's not in little spiritual practices that we do, and we kind of wonder how we're all doing, but it's, it's, in, a, it's in a relationship. What, what does Jesus do to break the spell of Mary's pain? Well, what does he do? He calls her by name. That's what Jesus does to break the spell of your pain. Hear him call Mary's name. Hear him call your name. I I, I love that Jesus doesn't say anything else to Mary. He just says, Mary. And the scales fall off her eyes and she saw Jesus. And for that moment, it's as if the whole church. It's as if we all are, are embodied there with her, having that experience with her. It's in that moment that she's carrying our tears. She's interacting as a representative for us. It's beautiful. Jesus calls us by name. What, is, what does Mary do? Look in verse 17. She reaches out and embraces the risen Lord. I would do the same thing, right? I love hugs. I love giving them. I like getting them. Mary embraces Jesus. And then I want you to think about an embrace that you've ever gotten. And as you think about that embrace that you've gotten, it was an embrace that you didn't want to end. Maybe came from a a family member, maybe came from a parent, maybe came from a, um, a, a, a friend you haven't seen in a long time, a lover, just... An embrace. You didn't want to end. If you know what that feels like, um, this is it. This embrace that Mary is having with Jesus, that is that embrace. It is the embrace. If you want to know what heaven feels like, we all wonder what heaven feels like. This is what heaven feels like. She's embracing Jesus, the one who knows her, the one who loves her. So, so sorrow is turned into dancing here. You get that? You get that? That's what Easter's really about. Sorrow is turned into dancing. Yeah, bring your sorrow. Yeah, feel your pain. Yeah, cry your tears. 
but it's turned into dancing. Your pain is turned into joy. Words are turned into a song. Death turns into life. Sam Wells, we'll quote him again. He says, doesn't the desire to preserve and embrace ultimately reduce the other person to an instrument of your own needs? Isn't there more to their life than making you feel cherished and beloved? Do you feel that? This is basically what Jesus is saying to her in verse 17. Don't cling to me, Mary. Don't hold on to me, Mary. It's not, Mary, that this embrace isn't special and unique. It's that I actually have a much greater task for you. I actually have a much higher calling and purpose for your life than for us just to cuddle here and talk about how wonderful and sweet the resurrection is. It is sweet. But he says, don't cling to me. This grace and embrace is to go beyond us. Right? It's to go beyond you. It's to leave here today. It was to leave with Mary, and that's the power through going and telling others. It's set up that way. That is the narrative. That is the story. Mary becomes the apostle to the apostles. Mary becomes the first preacher. Mary becomes the first one to to announce the resurrection. I mean, again, remember how powerless and pitiful Mary is in her story. Yet, God says, go, tell the others. Go tell the others. And are you noticing it with me here, what Jesus calls those others? Notice that Jesus doesn't say, go tell those losers. Oh, boy. Those losers, you know, those ones that denied me and those ones who thought they could run real fast, but those ones who doubt me sometimes, oh man, please go tell them. Go tell my brethren. Go tell my brothers. Go tell the other sisters. You you need to see that Jesus sees you that way. You need to see that in your weakness and in my weakness and in my doubt and in my confusion sometimes and as well with you that, that we're not losers. That God loves you deeply. Go tell my brothers. And lastly here, the power of God while we're still asleep. Look in verse 1. I mean, right where we started. John chapter 20, verse 1. They came to the tomb very early while it was still dark. And they took a crowbar and they had to pry really hard to get in there. Nope. That's not what it says. They came to the tomb and it was already open. Wow. God's at work. God is, God is at work. Uh, as Juan read for us, that an earthquake, the angel of the Lord descended on heaven, rolled the stone back, and then just sort of like sat on it. Like, uh. What you got, death? Where's your sting? As the Apostle Paul would write years later. Here's the good news for you and I today, that God is working in the midst of us being weak. God is working in the midst of you and I not seeing it and wondering, is it going to work out? And I'm going to say, I don't care, although that really means I care a whole lot. 
I don't care what barriers are coming up in my own mind or yours right now regarding the week that you're about to come into. What challenges, what dread, what fear, what, oh, well, God did it last time, but hmm, don't know about this time. That, that's all of us, by the way. God is at work. My family used to live in Thailand, and we're preparing to go back again this summer to visit, and in watching a documentary uh, to kind of help us think and remember Thailand a little bit, there's... Um, the documentarian there was, was showing us the reclining Buddha. Uh, if you've ever been to Thailand or maybe you've done some reading about Thailand, you know about the reclining Buddha. And as beautiful as that um, image is, if you've ever actually seen it, and I've seen it, uh, scripture is drastically different. The Christian scriptures are drastically different. And I'll quote one of the scriptures where in Psalm 121 says, Our God doesn't sleep. Our God is not reclining. Our God doesn't sleep and slumber. This is your resurrected Christ. This is your God who doesn't go to sleep when you do. Who's not viciously trying to figure it all out. And who's anxious right now, wondering if it is indeed going to all work out. Christ is risen. Christ has a plan And God is at work. And let's walk in that power, even in the midst of our tears, and even in the midst of our pain, and even in the midst of our doubt. Let's pray together. Father, we we are those people that need to be assured of, of this power that's ours because of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have reason to celebrate. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're hungry. We are so hungry, yet you fill us. Your table is overflowing. It's overflowing with joy, unspeakable. Satisfaction, untold. So Lord Jesus, we celebrate. We invite you to to help us believe in our unbelief. And we thank you for the power of the resurrection that's ours. And we pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.